You are listening to a podcast from The National. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I am your host, Nasr al-Wesni. This week, from how a recent news leak changed the face of the Qatar crisis, to how the UAE's marine ecosystem functions as a scientific precursor to the rest of the world. But first, let's deconstruct how some of the most important people in the world shake hands. To help me analyze the more human aspect of the G20 meeting earlier this week, I'm joined by Anna Pukas, the deputy editor of the Foreign Desk here at The National. Thank you so much for joining me, Anna. It's a great pleasure. Hello. Anna, you wrote a story earlier this week on the G20 meeting in Hamburg. In it, you analyzed Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel's body language during a meeting with Vladimir Putin of Russia. I'm fascinated by the early reporting that comes out of these conferences where the focus is on who shook hands, for how long, and what it means, it might seem trivial, but this really points to an often overlooked aspect of politics, the importance of personality. We think international relations are so defined by stake mechanisms, policies, and numbers that we forget how much influence character has on decision-making. So, Anna, how do you weigh personality and diplomacy? How do certain relationships change decisions that define the fabric of history? And do you think the weight of personality is still a factor? Very much so. Um, and it can override all the other factors. And at certain points, e- even in relatively recent history, it's been absolutely crucial. Um, the fact that uh, Franklin D. Uh, Roosevelt got on very well with Winston Churchill was absolutely crucial in persuading America to, to join the Second World War. A um, bit more recently, in the 80s, Um, The fact that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan got on extremely well, were very close friends, and that Margaret Thatcher got on very well with Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, we saw what happened there. It did hasten the end of the Cold War. And uh, without those three personalities in those positions at that time, the outcome for the world could have been extremely different. And I think we're seeing a similar thing now. Donald Trump is a very big personality. He doesn't dissemble. He doesn't. He's not very good at disguising his personality. He he is what he is, and he doesn't really care who knows it. So therefore, how other leaders react to him becomes very important. Um, Angela Merkel, on the other hand, is a very self-contained person. But as we saw this week, even someone as well trained, uh, if you like, or certainly accustomed to hiding her true feels, uh, fee- feelings, how her body language can still not betray her, but uh, it betray her innermost thoughts. And so it is, I mean, at the beginning of the G20 summit, when, you know, before anything had been said, any item on the agenda had been discussed, it was all about observing the chemistry or lack of it between the leaders. And uh, this is where Words are really unnecessary because your body will tell the story for you. And so so it showed. It's clear that she likes Emmanuel Macron very uh, very much and that they they look to be establishing you know a very good personal rapport. With Theresa May, we could see the handshake was as brief as it possibly could be. I mean, it could not have been any briefer. And it looked very much like you know, these are two alpha females sizing each other up, but it was Merkel's home turf. The G20 was in Hamburg, in her country, coincidentally, the city where she was born. 
And so she was going to see off this pretender. She shook hands briefly, and by the time Therese... And some things you can't hide. Um, with as much... You can try as much as you like, but you can't hide it. You know, and we all, we all recognize the basics of body language. The, the arms folded across the chest, you know that's defensive. This is someone protecting themselves or distancing themselves from you, actually imposing a barrier between themselves and the other person. We all recognize the, the insincere smile, the smile that doesn't quite reach the eyes, and that was the smile on the faces of those two women. Now, when it came to the much-anticipated meeting between Donald Trump and Putin, that was always going to be interesting. Putin is the, he's the Iceman, uh, which is what you'd expect from someone who used to be in the KGB uh, and a senior, uh, a senior ranking member of the KGB. Uh, and Donald Trump, uh, he's become, his handshake has become infamous. Um, there was a handshake he did with Mike Pence. His, his usual thing is to hold his hand out, palm upwards. Now, outwardly, that seems like a submissive gesture. Your hand, you're holding your hand out with the palm up. So the hand that goes on top of that would appear to be the dominant hand. Donald Trump uses it as a way to pull people towards him. He grasps the other hand and pulls it towards him, um, sometimes with embarrassing results. His meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin, it seemed like the uh, usual aggressive uh, uh, Trump body language that he implements with, you know, that he did with Mike Pence uh, and he tried to do with Trudeau. It wasn't there. It seemed very jovial, a bit more reserved. Uh, I mean, what do you think, does that reflect the conversation that they have, uh, especially how He's kind of changed uh, his stance, talking about how they want to uh, work with Russians on cyber counterterrorism. Oh, this is this has provoked a great deal of uh, of comment and um, a certain amount of dismay as well. Um, yes, he said that. Um, that well, the two appeared to be getting on very well. Vladimir Putin seized the initiative, or rather, was was able to seize the initiative because he gave a. Uh, a farewell press conference at the G20, and he said he found Donald Trump to be a very, very different from the TV version of Donald Trump, very assertive, very, very precise in his thinking. We don't know what Donald Trump really thought of Putin because he chose not to give a press conference. He just cleared off home as soon as he could. Um, it has since emerged that, um, yes, they did talk supposedly about this uh, cybersecurity, this mute, setting up this, uh, this joint cybersecurity operation, which has caused outrage, disbelief, uh, uh, dismay amongst his fellow Republicans um, with comments like, well, you might as well put a fox in charge of the hen house. How do you, how do you m mount a joint operation against this sort of thing at the same time as accusing that country, Russia, of spying on you. Yeah, there's been a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of contradiction about what happened in that meeting regarding the thorny issue of um, Russian meddling in the US elections. Uh, Putin said that he, that Trump had asked him and, and pressed him um, on whether there had been Russian interference. And Putin said he answered him honestly and that uh, Trump accepted his denial. Well, you might say, of course he would say that. When are the Russians ever going to admit to spying on anyone? Um, on, and then on the other hand, the American side say, no, Trump absolutely did not accept that denial. Um, 
So what really went on in that meeting is kind of going to be between those two men and it and how they actually got on will become I think will only be become clearer after subsequent meetings. Another uh, decision that was taken a bit more uh, out in the public was the question of the Paris Agreement and America's official withdrawal from the accord. I, I was in Paris when 196 countries signed the accord and committed themselves to reducing climate change. This was heralded as not only a victory for the fight against climate change, but also a shining example of transnational cooperation. Now America's out and it's a huge blow to the fight. So first, what does this mean for climate change with the US being the second highest carbon emitter in the world? Also, uh, what does this mean for America's increasing isolationist policies? Um, in terms of the uh, climate, the accord on climate change, it's uh, it's it's very significant. Um, I was going to say disastrous, but I'm not sure if America is going to be isolated on this. Then it's going to have the whole world raged against it. And frankly, if America continues to pollute at the rate that it does what America is harming above everything is America itself. Um, it's their own citizens that are going to get choked up with, with fumes. Um, as regards American isolationism, this has happened before. This, um, it's quite cyclical in a way. Um, in the First World War, uh, America pursued a policy of isolationism until almost at the end uh, when they joined in the war. Uh, in the Second World War, America was just coming out of a depression but uh, and had formidable problems of its own. Nonetheless, um, it, took, it took three years, uh, almost three years before America joined in the World War and only because there was a direct attack on America. And... Um, and here we are, I think, in the isolationist point of this cycle of in American uh, relations with the rest of the world. Um, it seems to appeal to the American electorate at the moment, which feels uh, downtrodden and forgotten. And those are the people that elected Donald Trump in the first place. I think what we can say is that when America has isolated herself from the rest of the world. It has not been good for the rest of the world. And America, there's no doubt that Europe as well recognizes that this is the situation. Um, when Angela Merkel told the G20 that, um, that uh, Europe had to face the fact that Europe can no longer rely on America for, for defense, uh, uh, Trump's remarks on NATO, and although he's back on board with NATO, you know he still continues his finger wagging at the other countries for not paying their share. We're now in the second month of the boycott against Qatar, where Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Egypt cut diplomatic ties with Doha over accusations that they support terrorism. This week, the Riyadh agreement was leaked, just as U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson began his shuttle diplomacy between the countries involved. The newly released documents are being used to prove Qatar failed to comply with written obligations it agreed to in 2013 and 2014 with the rest of the GCC. 
Joining us from Washington is our D.C. correspondent, Joyce Karam. Hi, Nasrat. Joyce, I was hoping to get a better picture from you. The leak, some are saying that it was sent out to completely undermine the mediation efforts. Others are saying that it's being, being used to frame it. What does this mean for the crisis? Where would you place us along the road to recovery or inversely, the road to belligerence? Nasser, I think first and foremost, uh, the leak is a message to U.S. Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson. I'm not exactly sure if it's to undermine uh, the negotiations. I think the timing coming on uh, the eve of his arrival uh, to to the Gulf uh, is a blunt message from those who leaked it that no negotiations can start with Qatar again for the purpose of just talking. Uh, I mean, they're trying to say that by virtue of what happened last time in 2013 and in 2014, uh, and when Doha uh, pledged to stop support for the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and uh, seize all um, media activity, for example, against uh, the state of uh, Egypt, hostile media activity. Uh, these were pledges in the agreements, and then now, uh, four years uh, later, those who leaked it are saying, well, none of that happened. Uh, so, so I think it's primarily a message uh, from those who leaked that any negotiations that uh, should it start with, with Doha, it has to be on a much stronger uh, ground with, with enforcement uh, mechanisms and such. Maybe it's important to go back to when uh, this crisis started. There was a rift almost between the State Department and the White House, Trump was tweeting, encouraging the move, and even verging on uh, taking responsibility for it. Rex Tillerson came around with the facts, uh, and he's in Kuwait now, you know, trying to exercise that. I mean, many people are seeing this as, as uh, a State Department kind of taking control, seizing control of this situation. Well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think it's clear yet who uh, is in charge of the Qatar uh, dispute file and, and the Trump administration. Uh, there is definitely a sense that uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is empowered uh, uh, by going uh, to the to the Gulf. Uh, I mean, he did wait six weeks to to make that trip, uh, but we are not sure yet if uh, this discrepancy in the messaging between him and the White House uh, is over. Um, I mean, just last week, um, President Trump has been still emphasizing that Qatar has to stop uh, funding uh, and financing uh, uh, for terrorism, either directly or indirectly. And what we heard uh, from Secretary Tillerson uh, in, in, in Doha today is, is not exactly uh, the same message. Uh, so I think it remains to be seen uh, where uh, the messaging of the administration is and who is in charge uh, of the file. I think uh, a lot uh, will be uh, will be put on what Tillerson uh, will be able to achieve uh, during this visit, his meeting in Jeddah with the four um, foreign ministers will be uh, very crucial tomorrow. And, 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 and depending on that, I think we will have a uh, more complete picture of uh, whether the Secretary of State is leading the U.S. effort, is the point man uh, for negotiations, or whether uh, differences uh, 
within the administration still overshadow uh, U.S. role in the dispute. Would you say that this is Tillerson's first real test in his, uh, his new role that he assumed since February? Largely, yes, because he has emerged, uh, he has personally submerged himself into the, the dispute. He, he, uh, he uh, issued, uh, he did issue a couple of statements uh, on uh, Qatar. Uh, one of them was completely contradicted by uh, President uh, Trump. Uh, I think he, he views himself, he views his uh, relations in, uh, in the GCC area uh, with those countries when he was CEO of Exxon uh, for decades, as uh, it gives him uh, more backbone, it gives him uh, uh, more caliber in, in negotiating uh, this. However, we have not seen over the six weeks uh, that we've gone through in this uh, in this crisis, uh, we've seen a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls from uh, sex uh, from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, but we have not seen yet any actionable uh, steps to to resolve uh, the conflict or uh, any sign of a uh, of a breakthrough. I mean, uh, Arab diplomats, uh, they all uh, publicly praise uh, the U.S. Secretary of State and say they have a good uh, rapport, they have good working relationship with them. But I, I think when it comes to an actual uh, deliverable, to an actual breakthrough, we have, we have yet to see one. Uh, mind you, his trip is coming really at a late stage uh, to the region. Uh, in the past, you know, when we have covered similar uh, regional or worse regional crisis, whether it's uh, it's war between uh, Israel and Hamas or it's the Iran uh, nuclear agreement or uh, Lebanon, uh, Lebanon war with Israel, uh, back then shuttle uh, diplomacy by U.S. Secretary of State happened in week one or week two. Uh, there is a lot of criticism here in Washington that Tillerson waited six weeks uh, to go to the uh, GCC, and uh, that in itself undermined his leverage and his tools to to bring uh, to bring forth a breakthrough to this. We're talking about face-saving mechanisms, and you know this is week six. A lot of things have been said on both sides that have created a lot of hostility, and. I mean, what vision would you see, if any? Is there a way out for both sides to uh, to this crisis? Is there any way to resolve it without, uh, you know, undermining either side's sovereignty or uh, uh, the perceptions from from the region? Well, uh, I think the gap between the both sides is, is is pretty wide. It's pretty it's pretty big. So. Uh, a lot of diplomacy will be required to, to patch it, to, to bring both sides together. Uh, and I'm not sure we're at a point of a breakthrough yet, let alone a point of starting to, to talk, to negotiate. In a sense, I think the four Arab states that are boycotting Qatar uh, are going back to the Reagan uh, doctrine. Trust, but uh, verify. Uh, we need Enforcement mechanisms, I think uh, lip service, uh, just uh, rhetoric or 
promises on paper is not going to be uh, enough uh, this time. And it seems that Washington realizes this and is working with uh, with Doha on uh, things related to counter-terrorism uh, uh, financing or uh, ideas to restructure uh, Al Jazeera Arabic, for example, according to uh, reporting uh, here in Washington. So while I think we are still early in, in the process, I know it's months too, it feels, it feels already a lot of time has passed, uh, but, but a skill set uh, to bring this to an end would require clear mechanisms and assurances by those negotiating to make sure that whatever agreement is reached this time will not uh, just be, uh, you know, uh, ink on, on, on paper uh, three or four years uh, from now. And that's where the U.S. can be sort of a guarantor uh, to whatever promises and pledges are made by uh, all those involved, you know, whether uh, Doha or Saudi or UAE or, or Egypt or Bahrain. Joyce, thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule. Thank you, Nasser. Great to be with you. Bringing it back to the UAE, uh, we've had one of the most sweltering summer days this week, with temperatures breaking through uh, the 50s. Humans weren't the only animals feeling the heat. Uh, fish in the Gulf apparently dived to depths to escape the wave. This made fish more difficult to catch and coincidentally drove the cost of fish to double and in some cases triple in price. Fish is a food staple in the region and uh, Anna Zacharias, one of our local news reporters, wrote a story about this. Anna, you grew up in the UAE. You know a lot of fishermen. What did they have to say about this? Well, on the one hand, they're saying that this is normal. This is something that happens every year. As you said, fish are like us. Uh, they, they don't like the hot weather. They go where it's deep and cool and nice, uh, so there's fewer fish to catch. But the issue this year, and it's been an issue for a few years now, is that uh, fish stocks are depleted. And so there's, there's not as many, even of the few fish that were existing, there, there are fewer fish still for us to have in the summer. So they've been compensating by importing fish uh, increasingly from other countries. Is it mostly from, uh, is it mostly from Oman or...? or a lot of fish from Oman, but the fishermen were telling me also uh, Turkey, even Sri Lanka, Thailand. So the fish you're getting at your local market, which you might think is nice and fresh and caught today, could be coming from quite far away. What, what does this mean, not only for the, the, the fishermen, but the environment? I mean, because there's often a clash between the two entities, right? On one hand, fishermen believe it's not only their economic right, but also their cultural right to fish here in the UAE. Well, on the other hand, there's environment agencies that are trying to mitigate the damage of fisheries lost. I mean, you've spoken to, to fishermen. How do they feel about uh, having their rights to the ocean being, being limited? Of course, as you say, around the world, fisheries, uh, the right to fish is a very important and, and loaded uh, issue. If, they have under, if they're under pressure, the fishermen, right, they only get paid based on their catch. 
So there's a lot of pressure on the fishermen themselves to to make this worth their while. Mm. And it's very expensive to go out, and, and they don't get as much money for the catch in summer, of course, because it's not there. A couple months ago, I spoke to the head of the fishermen's co-op, and he said, and we were writing a story about how sometimes when they are uh, the rough, rough seas, fishermen can't go out because the Coast Guard issues a ban. But he talks about how they have reserves in in like basically frozen reserves that first the first question was so my fish isn't fresh but the second question <laughs> was i mean th- it must have gone pretty bad now for for the the temperatures to to not only you know completely exhaust the reserves but also to make it so that fishermen can't catch anymore and in ras al-khaima there's a big issue not just in ras al-khaima um in the emirates in oman with young guys who go out spearfishing and this is another big issue. I think, I think we have to also step up and take responsibility. I'd like to thank all my guests who joined me on another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Nasal Wesmi. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.